This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Christians are awakening to the legacy of racism in America like never before. While public conversations regarding the realities of racial division and inequalities have surged in recent years, so has the public outcry to work toward the long-awaited healing of these wounds. But American Christianity, with its tendency to view the Ministry of Reconciliation as its sole response to racial injustice and its isolation from those who labor most diligently to address these things, is under-equipped to offer solutions. Because of this, the Church needs a new perspective on its responsibility for the deep racial brokenness at the heart of American culture and on what it can do to repair that brokenness. A new book, Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and repair, makes a compelling historical and theological case for the Church's obligation to provide reparations for the oppression of African Americans. Duke Kwon and Gregory Thompson articulate the Church's responsibility for its promotion and preservation of white supremacy throughout history, investigate the Bible's call to repair our racial brokenness, and offer a vision for the work of reparation at the local level. They lead readers toward a moral imagination that views reparations as a long overdue and necessary step in our collective journey toward healing and wholeness. As I mentioned, there are two co-authors, Du Quan and Dr. Gregory Thompson. Well, Dr. Thompson is our guest today, and a little bit about him. He is a pastor, scholar, artist, and producer whose work focuses on race and equity in the United States. He serves as executive director of Voices Underground, an initiative to build a national memorial to the Underground Railroad outside of Philadelphia. He's also a research fellow in African American Heritage at Lincoln University and visiting theologian for mission at Grace Mosaic Church in Washington, D.C. He's also the co-creator of Union the Musical, a soul- and hip-hop-based musical about the 1968 sanitation workers' strike. And we are speaking to uh, Dr. Thompson uh, from his home in Virginia. Hello, Gregory. Hey, great to be with you. Thank you, thank you. My first question is reparations. I have heard that bandied about in conversations. I've read articles about it, uh, I mean, for literally decades but it's never really been taken seriously. It's it's always, as I say, just been a part of a broader conversation. And so many people in those conversations in the past have just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, uh, it, it seems like an impossible feat, or they have some sort of moral stance against it. But now, we're hearing about reparations from various corners, and I'm curious if you have any understanding of why we're finally having this at, at higher levels, at more serious levels. 
Well, I think that's a great question, and you know, I, I think it, it's helpful for for you know the your listeners to to remember that it has been taken seriously in some places, but um, you know, n- notably in African American churches and communities for several hundred years, but not been taken seriously in largely white communities and certainly in in um, in evangelical spaces. Um, and you're right. There is a sense in which it's it is moving uh, more to a national level of conversation. I think there are a number of reasons for that. One, I think, and and one of the most important is, you know, Tanahasi Coates' article in the Atlantic, the case for reparations that came out several years ago, that I think made a made a very powerful case, and and just inserted it into the national public conversation. Uh, so I think that's part of it, and the fact that more and more people have become, begun to align around that. And, you know, there have been and are now reparations organizations, both in the Caribbean and the United States, um, who, are, who are trying to work together. So I think that's part of it. And I think part of it also is just the recognition of a lot of the failures of our kind of reconciliation efforts. Um, and an, att- and an, an awareness to say what we actually have to do is deal with some of these structural things and stop papering over them. And one of those is taking the, the thefts that, that African Americans have experienced very seriously and starting to ask, what do we do in response? So that's, that's where I, that's how I really account for what's happening. I suspect that there are people who really believe, because I did probably until I was an adult, uh, probably uh, even after college. I suspect that I would have believed that all freed slaves did receive 40 acres and a mule. And they didn't. Do you remember uh, or do you know why was that promised and why was that promise not kept? Yeah, so it, it was a, it came from a field uh, a field order. Um, that was given during the Civil War, where where um, it was, and particularly for the the coastal areas of, of South Carolina, um, and when General Sherman basically uh, looked at what was happening to the displacement of all these African Americans from land, and realized that one of the major issues that was gonna that was gonna need to be addressed was. Uh, how how these folks were going to live post emancipation? What they needed uh, was uh, land, which was a form of wealth, and also uh, a source for agricultural wealth. Right, so it was basically setting them up for an economic future. And that was that was um, obviously that was that was not done um, ever. And uh, and I think that there are a host of reasons for that, not least of which, well, you know, the. the the Johnson administration, after Lincoln's assassination, uh, really did step back from all these kind of reconstructive efforts, um, and and so these lands that were confiscated by the Union Army, um, these plantation lands uh, were uh, were given back to plantation owners, who then sold those lands to northern um, developers, largely northern developers. Um, and everybody financially profited from that except the African-Americans. So, yeah, African-Americans were not given reparations. Um, in fact, American slave owners were given reparations uh, after emancipation uh, and in certain settings, and that's really important that people understand that America does, in fact, have a history of reparations. It just has never seemed to have the ability to do that for African-Americans. I have to tell you that... The beginning of your book 
in the introduction is, I hate to flatter, but is one of the most entertaining uh, elements of a nonfiction book that I've ever read. And I am referring to the letter from Jordan Anderson that you publish. I think right. it's brilliant. Uh, I, I think that if I, if I saw this, uh, say, as a part of fiction on television, I would, I would roll my eyes and say, oh, come on, something like this couldn't happen. But in fact, this is historical, and, and it's amazing. It, <laughs> I kept thinking that this, this would be something written in a script by Aaron Sorkin. Um, so tell us a, right. a little bit. Uh, give, us, uh, give us the background on why Jordan Anderson would be writing his old master, Colonel P.H. Anderson, in Big Spring, Tennessee. Yeah, well, it's after it's after the Civil War. His old master has returned um, from the Confederate Army. Uh, Jordan Anderson and others had escaped from the plantation during the war. His 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 former master found found out where he was and wrote him and asked him to come back to the plantation and promised to to treat him well. He basically said, "The plantation's falling apart. I really need your help." And Anderson responds, you know, in in a way that's just absolutely genius and hilarious. Um, but the, the, but also very, very poignant and moving. And what he essentially says is, you did not pay me for what you owed me. And until you do pay me, I have no reason to trust your word. Even though I care about the old place, I, he says, I'd love to see the old home place again. Um, even though I care about my friends there, because you have not kept your word um, uh, in paying me, because you have not paid me, then I have no, uh, no basis for believing uh, that we could have a relationship or that I could be safe uh, in your presence going forward. And I, and I really think that not only is that, um, again, beautiful and powerful in its own right, but it's also very much illustrative of, of how we understand the racial situation today where African-Americans are consistently, as they have said for several hundred years, saying, I can't trust you because there are basic obligations that you have that everybody <laughs> that we recognize but you're not meeting them. And so I, we can't go forward towards some sort of conciliatory life until some basic things are addressed. You know, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. It just occurred to me, a memory just popped into my head. Uh, so I grew up in a family. We had a restaurant equipment uh, company in Detroit, and we sold janitorial supplies as well. One time, this uh, African-American restaurant owner came in, and he wanted to buy a mop and pail. And uh, someone else was helping him, but I was right there. Well, the name of the company uh, for this janitorial supplies is White. And and uh, uh, this gentleman asked about uh, something about the, about the pail, uh, the mop pail. And uh, this uh, salesman says, well... The white man, meaning the representative from the white company, the white man says it'll do blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> the prospective customer's eyes just kind of widen. And then the salesman uh, said, uh, oh, no, no. I, what I mean is the representative from the white company. And, and the, the, the customer says, I was going to say, because the great white father's been lying to us for years. So clearly that, that's just a part of the DNA, isn't it? That's right. That, that, that's exactly right. And I think that 
we try to make that argument in the book, um, and I think we're seeing it now. And it's not just that that you know a, a lot of the leadership of say quote white America has lied to African Americans is that we also lied to ourselves and willfully so about the truth about what has happened in in this country and the ways that we have or have not benefited from it and whether we have responsibility to address it. So I, I think it's in, it's you know we say at some point that 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 um you know American white supremacy has a pathological character to it because because it needed to believe that it was exceptional um, and like a beacon of freedom, even as it was enslaving millions of people. And there's something deeply morally broken about that. And that deceit has not abated. Are you sympathetic to those politicians who are now being asked, do you believe that uh, uh, America's racism is systemic or that uh, America uh, is a racist uh, a racist country in its DNA? Can you imagine that that's a, a, a perhaps a challenging question to answer when you're running for office in certain parts of the country? Uh, well, I, I'm I'm sure I'm sure that it is. Um, I don't. I I am. I guess I don't really feel sympathetic. I feel like public truth telling is at the heart of what of what public leadership is. Um, and I recognize in my own life that that if you're willing to talk about these things, that it's going to limit some of the <laughs> some of the like say public office holding that you could do. Um, but I feel like if these people cannot say the truth about this, um, then I, I don't. We're never going to heal. And I, I do recognize that it's a difficult thing. But I think this the very simple answer when somebody asks a public leader that is yes, and. and and part of our work is to figure out how to address that. And I, I really personally believe that this, the current campaign to discredit the notion of systemic or structural racism in America is, is a complete disgrace. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Dr. Gregory Thompson. He is the co-author, along with Duke Kwan, on the book, Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and repair. Uh, tell us about your work locally. What uh, are you able to do in the current position you're in on the ground? Well, uh, thank you for that question. My, so I'm the executive director of an organization called Voices Underground, which is based in Chester County, Pennsylvania. It's just outside of Philadelphia, which, and it was really, that's really the ground zero of, of American abolitionism and the Underground Railroad. Um, and so we have a category in the book called reparations of truth, where what we say there is that not only did white, did, did American kind of white supremacist structures that steal wealth and power from African Americans, but it also stole the truth. And one of the most important ways that it did that and is by building memorials that systematically kind of lied about about the truth of who we are as a people and and not building any memorials to to african-american culture um and so our work is to really build the national memorial of the underground railroad in this in this part of the country and it and it is in my mind a very explicit expression of the reparative work to which we're called and and i'm i'm very grateful to, to be a part of that what is the response there locally to your efforts well i mean it's been wonderful i've been working on it for four years 
um, and we worked with a, a lot of our community partners there um, in Chester County to start the Chester County Juneteenth Festival this year, um, which is the, the first countywide festival of its kind in, in, in their history um, that really focuses on African-American cultural history. And, you know, people, people came out. There were, there were events in every single municipality, 62 historical societies had events, schools, People are, are willing to rally around and, and tell these stories. And I think this is a really important approach because if we just have a very direct conversation, like about a, a political conversation, people tend to shut down. But when we can collaborate towards public truth-telling in a way that is interesting and creative, people are, people are joining and, and actually making it more beautiful than it would otherwise be. I will say this. I was in Philadelphia and uh, went to Independence Hall and, and basically did a tour of, of colonial Philadelphia just a few years ago. And I was very, very impressed by uh, the displays that along with the history of the war, uh, the history of gaining independence and the early days in Philadelphia, there was a very strong African-American representation, a representation of slavery uh, that, that went along with everything else. And uh, as I say, that impressed me. Um, I'm assuming that that is relatively new, that if I took the same tour in 1960, I might not see that. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's probably almost almost certainly true that you wouldn't have seen it at that point. But I do think it's important to know, you know, that Philadelphia um, and Pennsylvania really have long been a center of African-American um, activism for freedom. In fact, the largest black community, free black community in the United States was in the 18th century was in Philadelphia. Um, and so I, and a lot of the, the center of the Underground Railroad, because, you know, obviously the the boundary between Delaware and Pennsylvania was the, was the border between enslavement and freedom. And so that, that African-American community along, along Southern Pennsylvania um, has always played a very, very important role uh, in, in the work. Um, and so I'm, I'm really glad that you, that you saw it and, and, and not surprised. When you were writing this book, I, I'm suspecting that, the argument that uh, the national argument that we seem to be having over critical race theory was not at the forefront uh, of um, media outlets, uh, and now it is. Uh, and I, I don't believe you addressed critical race theory by its name in the book. If, if you did, I, I, I missed that. Um, but no, can, we didn't. Okay, but can you speak to... Uh, the the interesting situation we have with your book coming out right now at the height of this, uh, I want to say nonsensical argument, not that it, it, it doesn't bear discussing, but the fact that m- most people who are uh, um, in opposition to critical race theory cannot even define it. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's absolutely correct. And that's one of the reasons... I started seeing the, the critical race theory thing begin to emerge about about 16 months ago. Um, and I thought, now, this is very weird. Why is this happening? Um, because, um, you know, critical race theory has been around since the 1980s. And it's, it, as you know, it, it developed in law schools as a question to say, 
if the civil rights movement was so effective, why are why are do we still seeing these inequitable outcomes in in the in the criminal justice system? So it was an attempt to kind of theorize, uh, to theorize and explain these observable patterns of of what we're seeing. And the answer was that there there are still institutional habits and practices that that continue to to drive these outcomes. I think that feels fairly transparently true to anybody who looks at any of this data. But what's it, because it, and, and again, it's an attempt to theorize about observable phenomenon. But what it's becoming in this public conversation is just a euphemism for not for being un-American or Marxist. People who are talking about critical race theory, and I know people who, I mean, I've studied, I've been in the in the academy for 20 years. I know that people that I know who are talking about this, and, and including like quote thought leaders in the evangelical church, I know that they do not know what they're talking about, um, and it, it is super distressing to me that at a time when people around the world are recognizing the reality of systemic racism and are trying to address it in good faith, that many, many conservative evangelical leaders are changing the subject uh, and now saying that the real issue in America is not white supremacy. The real issue is the alleged Marxism embedded in critical race theory. And honestly, this is straight out of J. Edgar Hoover's playbook, in my opinion, because one thing you can set your watch by is when black people start talking about liberation, white folks start talking about Marxism. That is a historically demonstrable pattern for the past 100 years. Uh, in South Africa as well. Yeah, I can't, I, can't speak, I can't speak to that. But I do think that there are ways of discrediting uh, liberation movements, and one of those is to call them, is, is to basically make them an enemy. Um, and I think that's really what the critical race theory thing is. I mean, I read something just a couple of days ago. Somebody sent me about, you know, critical race theory is a Christian heresy. That is complete nonsense. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is not a worldview. It is not a religious belief. It is an attempt to theorize structural and institutional realities that are observable. Um, and it's, and I, I just, I have been... Honestly, it's, it's not easy to surprise me, but I have been really surprised and astonished by how much this is now being used uh, as, you know, kind of the, the new, that the real threat is not our own racism. The real threat is these black people who are writing about critical race theory. It's, I, I, find, I think it is shameful. I, I'm curious if, uh, and, and I realize this might be speculation on your part, but then again, you might have genuine knowledge of this. Some of the people whom you know who are uh, uh, Christian academics who are uh, opposed to critical race theory on the grounds that we're talking about right now, are they doing it because even though they know better and simply know that they can rile the masses the, uh, uh, with this? Or do you think that they generally believe, genuinely believe what they're saying about it, I, you know, I, it would be speculative, and I and I don't know. Um, my my guess is that, you know, and again, this is where I'll acknowledge this is speculation, but I, I it's what I observe. I think that in the in the kind of evangelical mind, and I'm an evangelical Christian, just so everybody's clear. Um, in the evangelical mind, one of the structures of that mind is a strong belief in its. A, its own victimization, that, that the gospel and everything is about to be taken away from us by some enemy somewhere. And the second belief is that we are the unique and, and singular stewards of the truth, uh, 
this I call this evangelical exceptionalism, and I feel like that is what is what is taking shape. I mean, from a from a scholarly perspective, when I read some of the things that these people are write, writing, I'm thinking they don't know this literature. They they just don't, and they don't understand why it came out. I mean, I'm a civil rights historian, right? They I, they don't know why it came into being. They're just talking about it as though it's a worldview. It isn't. Um, and so I think there's some basic ignorance, but I also think that there are these like substructures of the evangelical imagination that I've just described that are really driving this. And frankly, I think it's being it's it's a we're seeing a really powerful alignment between certain kinds of historic evangelical paranoia about worldview and and Marxism at the door. There's a fusion between that and some very very um, important developments in conservative politics in America right now. Those things are talking to each other and fueling one another, and I think a lot of that is is what's is what's driving this personally. From what I've observed, I I'm in complete agreement with you. How long has the book been out? Uh, the book came out in the I think it came out April second. Okay, uh, just curious if this has created any good conversations, any constructive conversations with people who may share your theology, but not your social or political uh, opinions? I would not say that, that the, the people who would not share kind of... I mean, we talk about social opinions. What I'm trying to do is I wrote a, a, a history of what, had, what has taken place, and so I, I'm, I'm not characterizing that as like a social opinion or a political perspective. I'm like, these are the things that happened. Theologically, we believe we have a responsibility to that. And so I feel like um, one of the one of the peculiar and I think actually tragic things that's happened in American evangelical Christianity is that is that is that theology and social political perspective are fused and it's really hard to separate those for people. Um, and so I would say that this has been we've been having really interesting conversations. I think that people are excited to learn. A lot of people are excited to learn about this, especially on the ground. Um, I think that people who are already concerned about racial injustice, they feel grateful that somebody has written, uh, written something that is like theologically reflective and historically grounded. But I would say that people who were already predisposed to see this as just some woke exercise and critical theory by some allegedly progressive pastors, I don't really feel like they're having conversations about this. I think they're just dismissing it out of hand. Um, and, and, and I think I'm, I more or less expected that. Um, but there are, if this was sort of a, Duke and I knew, this was sort of a, for those who have ears to hear kind of book. Um, and it was to equip people who are really wanting to take the next step and really wanting to contribute to healing our nation. And I did not think it would, it would persuade the people who seem to me to be stewards of the status quo. Uh, well, Gregory, we are down to the wire for this episode of Common Threads, but I have more questions. I'm hoping you'll be able to join us next week. I'll be very happy to. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Dr. Gregory Thompson. He is the co-author of Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Please join us next week here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. 
In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Dr. Gregory Thompson. He is the co-author of the book Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair, a book he co-wrote with Duke Kwon. And uh, we're going to continue a conversation today. A little bit about our guest, Gregory Thompson who is a Ph.D., uh, is a pastor, scholar, artist, and producer whose work focuses on race and equity in the United States. He serves as executive director of Voices Underground, an initiative to build a national memorial to the Underground Railroad outside of Philadelphia. He's also a research fellow in African American Heritage at Lincoln University, and visiting theologian for Mission at Grace Mosaic Church in Washington, D.C. He is the co-creator of Union, the musical, a soul and hip-hop-based musical about the 1968 sanitation worker strike. And we are speaking to uh, Dr. Thompson uh, in Virginia. And welcome once again to Common Threads, Gregory. I'm glad to be back. Thanks. Certainly. Uh, One thing that we didn't mention last week, and I think it is kind of important. You're writing what I think is an extremely important book on the history of slavery, of Jim Crow, the uh, this, uh, Reconstruction prior to Jim Crow, uh, and uh, the Civil Rights Movement, and the movement uh, 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 that we are experiencing today uh, in race relations. 
you are white and your co-author is Korean. And I'm wondering how that all worked <laughs> to, to get this book out of both of you. And, uh, well, I'll just let you answer that. Yeah, well, it's a great question, you know, and it's one of the things that we had to talk about um, as we were thinking about this. I mean, in terms, I'll just speak for myself. You know, I'm a white Southern man um, from South Carolina and descendants of people who were in the Klan. And, um, you know, my own, my own like moral life is, it's not white guilt. It's, but it's an attempt to take responsibility um, for, for an historical inheritance. Um, and my whole life is about that work. Uh, and I, I also am approaching it from a missiological perspective, where I actually think that the greatest kind of threat to the integrity of Christianity in America is not some alleged Marxist plot. It is our own unwillingness to repent uh, and to redress our, our, our country's singular history of white supremacy. And so th- that's, a, that's all part of who I am. Um, and that drove me to this book, and in fact, it drives all of my work. Um, but, you know, when we, when we were beginning to write this book, we were like, is this an appropriate book for us to write? And we talked to a lot of folks around the country, and the answer was, yes, it is, because a reparations conversation is by nature a two-party conversation. There's those to whom reparations are owed, uh, in this case, African Americans, and there's those who owe them, in that case, me. And so each, in each part of that conversation, each party of that conversation has its own role and its own things to say, and this book is an expression of that. We say that, um, I don't know if I said it in the book, but I have said it in other settings, this is, imagine if the thief on a cross wrote, wrote, a, wrote a book. <laughs> this is from that perspective. And it's interesting, because uh, last week when you were with us, we were talking about critical race theory and how so many people, particularly on the right, uh, are condemning it for reasons that are nonsensical. And one of the reasons I've heard, I'm sure you have as well, is uh, I don't want my child being taught to be guilty about his race. That's racism. Now, you just said you are the descendant of clan members, and you're not feeling guilt you're simply taking responsibility. Could could you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, gosh, there's so many things that are happening that just feel so deeply tragic right now. Because in fact, what I think is happening is these these parents on the right, who, for all of their condemnation of of, of left wing college students as snowflakes, uh, are actually creating a form of psychological instability in their own children. Because what they're saying is, I can't have my child actually looking at the world as it is and imagining that they might have some sort of role to play um, or have had some benefit that they need to take responsibility for. What we actually need to do is psychologically insulate them from reality. And I think that is like profoundly destructive because I'm approaching this not because I feel all guilty and I'm trying to alleviate my guilt. I'm doing this because I love my neighbors. And because I, I want to live in the world as I find it, which is what I think a missionary does, and respond, you know, with the, with the gospel. And so I feel like critical race theory doesn't teach you to feel guilty about your race. What it does is it helps us understand. And let me just say parenthetically, I don't love everything about critical race theory. And there isn't just one single thing called critical race theory. Those scholars disagree with one another. So just as a caveat, and, and, by the, and by the way, I think that's how the intellectual life works. 
But the good parts of critical race theory is that it is trying to teach us not to feel guilty for being white. It's trying to help us understand how structures of oppression or harm or injustice take shape among us. And that seems to me to be an eminently important and useful thing for children to understand. Let's go back uh, to the days of slavery. There's a couple of uh, couple of uh, concepts in your book that I've wondered about for a long time. First of all, you have a section called black animalization, and this was the understanding that that uh, many slavers in America uh, they they referred to Africans as animalized humans, and. What what I'm curious about, two things. Number one, uh, was there ever the, the, the opinion that black Africans did not have souls? Or was, that, was it a given? Do we, do we know? Are there any documents to that? Well, I mean, I think there's all manner of nonsense that came out. Um, and, and certainly there was, there was the, uh, the idea that that Africans, African Americans were, were almost like beasts of burden. They were like a horse. And Frederick Douglass makes this explicit. Um, whether somebody made a, a, an argument that they are without souls, I, I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, I, I think that would be very difficult to make that for people to make that case credibly, especially since they required them to go to churches on Sunday. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I, I feel like it's important for the, for your listeners to understand that. When you're enslaving someone, you have to have a justification for doing that. Um, And so this was one of the justifications, that these are not actually human beings, that they're they're more like, as you know, David Brian Davis uses language of animalized humans. And and you see that today when, I mean, I'm sure you remember during the Obama administration when people were sending around pictures of Michelle Obama looking like a monkey. Like, yes, that's what this is. This is one of the ways that white America has managed its relationship to black Americans, and that is by dehumanizing them. And clearly, they must have felt, at least at some point, the majority of them, they must have felt that they were, in fact, human beings because they, they Christianized them. They, they believed that they did have souls, and I'm assuming that they believe they were saving their souls. Is, is that not right? Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that these, I actually describe in the book these three different strategies of dehuman, of, of like conceiving of African Americans. There's animalization, there's demonization, which is, you know, really takes place a lot in, in, um, in the Jim Crow era of this is the dangerous black man who's going to allegedly sexually harm a white woman. And then there's infantilization, which is this, this is just kind of a, they're just like children. Um, and I think it's important to understand that, in my view, none of these have ever been principled accounts, meaning they don't, people didn't actually, actually believe them at a fundamental level. They use them as different forms of justification. And those three, even those three uh, ways of talking about African-Americans, each of which is, is observable, those are inconsistent with one another. I think what we have to see is that these are these are like pragmatic forms of reasoning that justify behavior to which we are committed. And that's why you're going to see all kinds of inconsistencies throughout this. So, yeah, they would say they're horses or that they're beasts of burden, but then they would also, uh, you know, bring them to church and they would also have them raise their children. So there's 
these, this goes back to what we talked about last week, which is that there's a fundamentally pathological aspect to all of this. It's not reasonable. When you look back at history, do you see the, the Christianization of Africans during slavery? Do you see that as a logical result, or are you surprised? Sorry, as a logical result or what? A, a, a logical result of the Christianization, meaning that these African Americans did accept Christianity as their religion. Uh, I've always found that surprising. Uh, you, you know, the, the only examples they had were the people who owned them. And, you know, like, okay, this is supposed to be a good Christian. And we are asking you or forcing you, how I don't know what word is better, to be a part of this religion. And pretty much they they accepted it. It may have taken a few generations, but right? I mean, it was... Well, go yeah, on. I think that's, I think it's, that, that's it, that the, the role of Christian religion among the enslaved peoples is like a really important part of this story. One, I think it's important for listeners to remember that Christianity was very widespread in Africa already uh, and before it came to Europe. Um, and so I think that that's, that's important to keep in mind. But another thing is that you're right. These folks were coerced. They were, this was a cultural and reli- enslavement was an economic project that also had cultural and religious entailments. And, um, yeah, these, these folks did in fact, a lot of African Americans did in fact embrace Christianity. But I think what's important to understand is that they found themes in Christianity and in ways of relating to, to Jesus that actually were forms of subversion of their, of their oppression. Um, and, I, you know, there's a scholar, Albert Rabateau, who, who talks about the role that, that, this, that this Christianity played. in it, it had an emancipatory role. And so I think, again, th- this is one of the things I think is most beautiful about the Christian faith in America, as it has found expression in the black church, is that even in the midst of all this horrible stuff, they saw because the Spirit told them and showed them that God was with the poor and that he loved them and that he would deliver them. And that, that is why, where the prophetic energy of the black church has really always been. And I think that's, that's one of the—and I, I personally believe that the black church has been one of the most important and faithful stewards of Christianity in the West. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella. And my guest today, Dr. Gregory Thompson, he is the co-author of Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. So, uh, Greg, in, in your book, you give um, a couple of different, you make a couple of different cases, one from the Hebrew Bible and one from the New Testament, in terms of this is, this is what I'm using to back my uh, conviction that reparations must be made. So can you address those uh, uh, in, in either order? Yeah, sure. So I'll take the example of Zacchaeus, because that, that actually gets at both of them. You know, those of your readers who are familiar with the Bible will know the Zacchaeus story. This man um, had lied to his neighbors and stolen from them unjustly. He encounters Jesus and then says, if I've stolen anything, I'm going to give back four times what I, what I stole, and I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. Zacchaeus wasn't just kind of freaking out right there, okay? Uh, he, was, he was actually relying on the Jewish tradition that comes from the book of Numbers um, about, about restitution. 
And so uh, part of that part of our book that says when one is culpable for a theft, and we, we have different ways of talking about what culpability means in, our, in the theological tradition, then one has an obligation to restore those things. That is, that is in the book of Numbers, it is in Deuteronomy, and it is, it is of course, in the Gospels. Um, and we, we think that, I mean, honestly, we think that every six-year-old in every church in America already knows this. Like, this is, this is not a complicated moral case. When you take something from someone, you give it back. Um, and so we already know this. We just have not been willing to apply it to this particular social situation for a host of reasons. And uh, can you? There was a couple other. I'm, I've got the book in front of me, but I can't find the page. Uh, there were a couple of other uh, portions of the Bible that you also bring out uh, to, to make this uh, to make this case. Am I correct? Well, I mean, I, I think our our focus was really on Zacchaeus, and then the the especially the books the the books of Moses around the the, the kind of Hebrew theory of, of restitution and then of course we had a whole section on the good samaritan yes is, that's uh, it and also, yeah and i think the good samaritan story is really important because um you know for your readers who haven't read the book i mean listeners who haven't read the book we basically say that white supremacy um was an act of theft um and that and that there are two really important stories in the New Testament that deal with theft. One of them is the Zacchaeus story, and the other is the Samaritan story, where somebody came upon a theft in which they were not complicit, and they still sought to restore the person to wholeness. And so for us, that really obviates the, the concern of, I never owned slaves, or my family's from Ireland, and we didn't come until the 1890s. I, I shouldn't do this. And I think that that kind of extenuating questioning is 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 sort of unnervingly absent from the Good Samaritan story, right? And so I think it's really important for people to say, this is about the love of our neighbors. That's what this is about. Yeah, the way I, I see it is that if, if someone takes citizenship today, regardless of where they're from, they could be from China, they could be from Germany, they could be from uh, uh, South Africa, wherever they're from, at at that point, something almost mystical happens when they become the heirs of everything. They become the heirs of uh, the the Declaration of Independence, and the, uh, our founding fathers become their founding fathers, and hence they also must own the responsibility of making uh, making good on anything that America has done as a country uh, that uh, perhaps is negative. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's fundamental to 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 nationhood. I think that's how polities work, and I think that in in spite of all of their their kind of like exonerative anxieties that are going on in, in the kind of conservative right theological leadership about well we're not responsible for this. The fact of the matter is these same people are very happy to have July 4th parades um, and to talk and to talk in, in sanctimonious prayers about how we ought to continue to take the light, you know, that God has given to this nation forward. And what that shows me um, is that we are very comfortable. We, we understand collective responsibility in, polity, in our polity when we're talking about the blessings of America, but it suddenly becomes mystifying to us when we're talking about its burdens. And I think that's, that is a sign of moral sickness. Is this a part of uh, uh, Chapter 5, Owning the Ethic of Restitution? And uh, discuss the, uh, the section, uh, Blinded with the Love of Gain. 
and uh, John Hepburn. You know, I don't have that section in front of me. Why don't, can, you, can you tell me a little bit more of what yeah, you're looking quick. for? Yeah, real quick. In 1684, John Hepburn departed Great Britain and settled down in East Jersey, where he made a quiet living as a tailor. He, attri- he arrived in America as an indentured servant and a Quaker. Both of these attributes, each in its own way, would arouse him in him a moral disquietude over the enslavement of Africans. The former yeah. by, by fostering personal empathy for those laboring under lifelong bondage, the latter by embedding him in a religious community on the front lines of the abolition movement. So I, I guess uh, what I'm saying is that there was consistently a strong Christian ethic opposing slavery and, and bigotry in any form uh, in certain communities, but it seems like it was not always the loudest voice. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so there, uh, there's an undeniable uh, witness, and this is one of the things that actually encourages me about the Christian Church in America, is that um, the Christian Church has, in fact, been at the forefront of, um, of the freedom movement, of abolitionism. Um, certainly that was true in, in, in the Quakers, it was true in Presbyterians, it was true in Methodists, um, it was true in Baptists in different contexts. And so I think that we have to understand that the Christian Church in America has has always had uh, a, been a been a place of resistance. Now it's not only been a place of resistance, and in fact, in many places, it's been more often uh, it's, it's baptized the status quo as it continues to do. But I, I do think it's important to understand that that the Christian tradition in America, in white churches, black churches, etc., have long drawn on the scriptures directly related to the treatment of African Americans in this country and leaned on the Christian theological tradition as the source of, of redress. And that's really important for people to know that. Tell us a little bit about uh, your church, uh, Mosaic. Um, and I, I'm gathering that it's probably fairly diverse racially. Is, is that a good assumption? Yeah, that's correct. So Grace Mosaic is a, is a multi-ethnic congregation that's pastored by an African-American pastor named Russ Whitfield, who's a wonderful, brilliant, amazing man that I am privileged to work for. Um, and that congregation is working out its life in Northeast D.C., um, trying to love its neighbors, trying to work through race issues in its own, in its own community, um, and then trying to do reparative work in the, in the larger city. And it's a part of a network. It's actually in the same network where, where Reverend Duke Kwan's church is. He's a pastor of Grace Meridian Hill. It's just a, it's the same kind of church, but in a different community in, in D.C. So that that is a place that's actively trying to work out these things, and I'm you know and I'm really grateful to be a to be a part of that. I I suspect that the book is is looking at a couple of different um, processes. One would be that Christian churches, Christian organizations would work for reparations, uh, especially those perhaps in the South that have a very clear link to slavery. And you're also encouraging America, which is not officially a Christian nation, but majority Christian, to also take a very serious look at this subject. Would that be correct? Yeah, I I mean, I think we're basically saying... This is not just the federal government's responsibility to figure this out. The Christian Church, because of its own, because of its complicated history, and because of its moral 
um, tradition and because of its missiological calling ought to be doing the work to repair this country from 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 its racist history. This is not un-American to say that America has had a racist history. It's just it's just true. It's not the only thing that's true about America. But I think churches need to take responsibility for this um, and and to address it. Um, some because of very clear lines of culpability, um, but all of us because of the work of love that that we're undertaking. So yeah, I I hope to see churches taking this seriously, working with black communities in their own local communities. Um, because that's another thing we need to point out about our book is our vision is really of a, of a local community-based model for reparations, where commu- local African American communities and 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 white communities are working through these issues together and together determining what would it mean for us to work towards repair together. And I think that's a really important calling. I think that's what churches should be doing, and that's why we wrote this book. Now, a lot of times when people think of reparations, they think of something something physical, something substantial, such as financial gain or uh, an education um, is that that doesn't sound like something that could easily happen in in local communities but perhaps I'm wrong how, how do you see this working out yeah I think it depends um, I mean it obviously depends on the communities and again I we do think that the federal government has a responsibility for this and as I pointed out last week the federal government has in fact already it does already have a history of reparations um, in this country, just not to African Americans. Um, so yeah, I think that I think that local communities can do meaningful things. I mean, I think that local communities, if we just want to talk about the financial aspect, there are certainly resources in local communities to do, you know, certain kinds of educational loan forgiveness. There, there to do some um, like mortgage subsidies. There are things that local communities can do. Local banks, local businesses can work together with churches um, and communities to create this, these kinds of initiatives. And I think it's happening. It happens all over the place. So I do. And I think that part of the reason we want to encourage local communities to do this all over, all over America is because we think that kind of, you'll, we'll begin to see workable strategies emerge over time that could have broader purchase. Um, And so I, I, I'm actually excited. I know that the local communities have limitations um, and that no local community is going to be able to solve all these problems. But but I think things will start most meaningfully and constructively in those local towns. Now that we are, we seem to be, I got to be very careful how I word this, we seem to be inching towards normalcy as far as COVID is concerned. However, we know that there is a resurgence amongst uh, communities that have not been vaccinated. I'm just curious if you are touring at all promoting this book. Not, not yet. I think we probably will start in the fall. Our sense is that, you know, writing a book on reparations is not going to be uh, our book on reparations is not going to be instantaneously popular in any setting. And so I think that it's going to take some time for people to to want to read this, see what they think, look at reviews. And then, you know, we'll start seeing more conversations take place in the fall of the kinds that you're describing. So that's that's what I'm expecting. But, you know, we'll see. Well, I wish you the very best of luck with that, uh, Greg. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we are uh, at the end of this episode of Common Threads. I want to thank you so much for being with us uh, this week and last week as well. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for your kindness and having me. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today, Dr. Gregory Thompson, co-author of Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Please join us next week.
here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Mm -hmm.